0: Hey, this is Plain Spoken, and I'm Jeffrey Rickman. If this is your first video you're watching that I've done, um, I'm a United Methodist pastor, local licensed pastor in a very small town in northeastern Oklahoma called No Wada. And uh, I started this project a few months ago with the uh, intent and purpose of sense making within the United Methodist Church, specifically around the issues of disaffiliation and the creation of the Global Methodist Church, which is. Um, uh, a new denomination that's coming out of evangelicals and conservatives that have uh, decided that it's time to leave the United Methodist Church. Uh, my church that I serve here in Nowada and the one north of here that I serve in Delaware, both have taken disaffiliation votes um, and are hoping to disaffiliate next month. And if they do, and the conference releases them, then um, it's my intention to join the Global Methodist Church. So, all cards on the table, that's who I am, that's what I'm about. The, the purpose of this channel and the different segments that I do on this is to uh, kind of speak to conservatives and try and help them around the United Methodist Church and around the world uh, make sense out of what's going on. So sometimes I focus on other annual conferences. Uh, sometimes I focus on big topics. Uh, today I'm starting a new um, line of, of kind of speaking publicly this one's called Bitter Medicine, and so uh, the the premise behind the whole Bitter Medicine series that I hope to do over a few months is that um, we have uh, generally we have a continuum on which Methodists operate, which would be um, I think for you this is the right uh, you have right leaning and left leaning people, and you have these these theologies that have extremes, but but we have all kinds of alignments along this continuum, and I align pretty far right, and so I want to speak to right-leaning people and help make sense, and then I also want left-leaning people to be able to, to watch and listen to this and see how I, as just an example of a right-leaning per- person, make sense. Um, I, I, before I get into this Bitter Medicine series where um, I'm kind of critiquing right-leaning persons, not, not necessarily right-leaning thought always, but there are people in any on, the, on this continuum that that operate in bad faith all over the continuum. Um, there are people who uh, don't reason through things well, but there are also people who, who lift things up in a, in a way or um, uh, from an angle that just isn't helpful. And so I'm usually uh, addressing stuff on this side that I don't like, but it's also important to address stuff on the right side that, that is not helpful. So that's a point here. Um, before I get into today's specific one, I just want to thank everybody for for emailing me, for commenting, engaging me. Um, since I started this project, I didn't know how many people would find this useful. Uh, I like the way I think through this stuff, but I wasn't sure how many other people would. It's been really great to get um, reinforcement, get some pushback, get some engagement. Um, so thank you for doing that. If you think that I do a good job, I would ask you to, to send this to a friend. Um, I'm hopeful that the, the presence that I have can, can help us be less emotional and more um, empathetic, more understanding of the larger situation so that we can navigate things better than we currently are. So um, today's topic is on the, the, the tendency of right-leaning people to infer corruption on the part of annual conferences in an area where there really isn't any and that's specifically around the, uh, the practice that is being found around different annual conferences, where conferences are demanding that local churches give membership information, not just larger information, but specific information on specific members' um, contact information. So um, what, what we've seen is uh, my, my conference has required it, um, Baltimore-Washington conference, several conferences from the top, have reached out to local pastors, ordained elders, any church that wants to disaffiliate, and they say, we're going to require you to give us all of your membership information—names, email addresses, mailing uh, addresses—so that, you know, sometimes they give an explanation, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's in the written disaffiliation agreement, other times it's just something the the superintendent requires, otherwise you can't move forward in the disaffiliation process— but um, sometimes, you know, I know in my conference, they, they didn't um, reach out to membership directly. They just wanted the membership records, uh, I think, to, to help incentivize local church pastors being responsible about actually reaching out to those people. If there's a fear that there's going to be conference follow-up on all your membership, perhaps maybe you're, you're more likely to reach out to all of them. Now, I've heard a lot of conservative pastors cry foul on this particular practice. And I wanted to make this video because I really don't think that this is good or right for conservatives to be crying foul on. I think there are a couple dozen other things that conservatives are rightfully upset with and should call attention to, but this particular one, I think, is an invitation for conservatives to uh, behave righteously and in good faith. Now, but I wanted to establish one of my principles from the beginning of this, which is, I am a right-leaning person because I think the right side is right. Um, I, I think that when you hold up the ideals and beliefs of the right against those of the left, the right prevails. I think they 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 fit more uh, perfectly with God, but also with human nature. That they result in human flourishing and happiness, as as uh, uh, John Wesley understood it. Happiness and holiness uh, are one. And that that only is reached whenever one um, assumes a position towards God that is deferential towards Him, towards the Holy Scriptures, towards tradition, and not at all reverential towards um, subjective experience and reason. So the Wesleyan quadrilateral, I think, is, is toxic. I think right-leaning people need to rebuke that, and uh, um, it concerns me that of right-leaning people who are leaving, they're still trying to hold on to it, but that's, that's another topic for another day. With today's topic, why would it be wrong to take issue with annual conferences requiring this local church membership information? I'm going to answer the the conversation that that question very succinctly. I <laughs> know I'm not very succinct. I'm going to answer it succinctly with Book of Discipline references, and then uh, uh, I'm going to zoom out from there and talk more about the theological concepts around it. So um, if you're not inclined to do long-form thinking through stuff, you just want to see what's in the Book of Discipline. Um, I've already recorded this once, and I was going to release it, and then I had a conservative friend reach out to me who was on the opposite side of this, and he said, you better quote to me something from the Book of Discipline, otherwise uh, you you can't talk about this. So I did some better homework. I'm going to quote several parts of the Book of Discipline, including one that... that uh, led to a different place in the conversation between me and my conservative friends. So uh, the first place to read out of, and uh, this is out of the, the 2016 Book of Discipline. I know that it's been updated since 2019. Um, but paragraph 215 is on the definition of membership, and it's on point four. All baptized or professing members of any local United Methodist Church are members of the worldwide United Methodist connection and membership, uh, and members of the church Universal. So, this addresses this problem, of, uh, this question of when someone is a member of a local church, are they also a member of the annual conference? Is the annual conference um, within its rights to demand specific local uh, membership information, or are these people members only of the local church and the local church serves as kind of like a buffer between the annual conference and the local church? And I, I think this makes it pretty clear immediately. No, they're members of every different level. They're a member of the local church, of the charge, of the district, of the conference, of the jurisdiction, of the general church connection. They are members of all of those things. And so um, we're gonna talk about connectionalism if you you hang on and watch through this. But the notion of connectionalism is that every level of the church is connected uh, to each other through the structure of the denomination and we'll, we'll talk more about the history of that, but if, if membership is in every level of the church, then every level of the church is entitled to a direct connection. Um, that's, that's the argument that I would make. Um, the next section would be of um, in paragraph 601. This is on the purpose of annual conferences. The purpose of the annual conference is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world by equipping its local churches for ministry and by providing a connection, there's that word again, for ministry beyond the local church, all to the glory of God. So the notion there is that the the distinct job of the annual conference is to connect local churches to one another, and it can only do that by being over them and serving as a connecting agent. I would argue that it cannot do that if it doesn't have access to local church membership. The next section I would quote is from paragraph 604, point nine. Uh, the annual conference shall have the power to make inquiry into the membership status of the local churches, and where no members have been received on confession of faith during the year, it may require the pastor and the lay membership to appear before the appropriate agency and make explanation. Now, the intent of this explicitly is to track why um, membership hasn't grown. You know, uh, I'm, I think it's <laughs> probably a relief for a lot of clergy that annual conferences don't exercise this very often. But the reason that I think this is pertinent is because it establishes the right of the annual conference to make specific membership inquiry in a local church. Now, the final um, citation I would have is from paragraph 645.1a. Yeah, I think that's it, isn't it? Yeah, 645.18, yeah. Um, That's where we're at, yeah. Um, To be informed about the needs and opportunities of the small membership church in rural, suburban, and urban settings in the life of the conference, specific data shall be gathered that relate to all structural levels of the conference, including the local church. This data shall include but not be limited to demographics, membership, information on the formation and effectiveness of cooperative ministries, information about pastoral tenure, compensation, and other factors that affect the vitality of small membership churches. Such information will be regularly updated and disseminated to bishops, district superintendents, and to relating conference boards and agencies, the general blah, 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 blah. Sorry, I know that's not professional. Anyway, it establishes very clearly, once again, that for the sake of church vitality, Uh, conferences can require this information. Now, um, this leads to a should question that involves connectionalism, covenant, and accountability. These three larger concepts are what I'm going to go into now, but I wanted to lift up the actual language of the Book of Discipline so that we understand that we are talking about um, something that is in writing, something that has been written out, it starts with the the concept of connectionalism, and it expands in a very uh, tactile, concrete way to the local church, we are all connected. Now what the situation is, is that a, a large number of churches are wanting out of the denomination but you're not out of the denomination until you're actually out of the denomination. And that means while you're in, you're in. So if you saw my breakdown on the different resolutions made at jurisdictional conferences around the United Methodist Church, around the United States, um, there was a resolution that dealt with, hey, if it's your intention to leave, then you should go ahead and get off the boards and agencies so that you're not, not influencing things. And one of the things I said is, when you're in, until you leave, you are in. And so, until they grant you exit, you are entitled to a right in the denomination. And, and it goes; it cuts both ways, though. While you're in, you still have to play by the rules established in the Book of Discipline. And I think it's false to say that it is corrupt or wrong of the conference to require specific membership information. Um, let's talk about the specifics of why the conference is doing this. And of course, it's important; it's impossible to read minds. But why would the conference want access to individual? membership information. The thing that is suspected by paranoid right-leaning conservative people like me is um, throughout the connection there have been disaffiliation votes held where the general worshiping body that's there every week is generally clear that they want to leave, you know, and there's a clear majority. However, on the day of the vote, a bunch of inactive members come out of the woodwork that haven't been there in 10, 15, 20 years and they come and they vote, they participate in the vote, and they don't pass the 66.6% threshold that's needed to disaffiliate. And so a church that on Sunday morning very clearly does not want to be with the United Methodist Church cannot leave because these, these long-standing members show up. And so the annual conference knows that in right-leaning churches, the ones that don't attend are probably left-leaning, probably dissatisfied with the way things are, and would be more likely to vote uh, to stay in the denomination, maybe get back some previous version of their local church that leaned further left that they want back. So um, the notion here is uh, right-leaning pastors know that the, the, the conference, if they get this information, can make direct overtures to the whole membership and bring out some of those that would vote to stay, uh, part of a larger stay UMC, BUMC UMC, maintain the building, maintain the assets, keep as many of these churches in the fold as possible. Um, and so they see this as um, corrupt or badly intentioned. I have no doubt that, that some in leadership have bad intentions, but um, to, to look at this and say this is by nature... An overreach of executive authority or an abuse of power I I think is wrong, and that's because of what's in the Book of Discipline. And I want to go ahead and give the bitter medicine now. Um, And before I do this, I want to remind conservatives we're the ones that profess the historic uh, beliefs of the Church, and that means belief in the Fall, and in the importance of talking about sin and damnation, and uh, the importance of the practice of conviction of sin. And when you look at the foundations of Methodism, it was very common for all Methodist preachers to convict their audience of sin, to speak very clearly about the sins that their listeners are participating in and giving them a chance to turn from it. And so I'm participating in that, and your integrity as a right-leaning person is on the line as you receive this, if you receive it with a defensive spirit, and how dare he say this, I thought he was on my side, you can't say anything negative about our side, um, well, you are a partisan, sir, and you should repent, because the thing is, we all have to be able to receive correction, not just from God, but from one another. That's the whole point of the church, and so I'm I'm trying to do this iron sharpens iron thing, and I appreciate those of you who write me in the right spirit and say, I don't think you're quite right. Here's where I'm going to say, I don't think you're quite right if you have a problem with the the bishop or the the cabinet or the board of trustees requiring your membership information. And I'm going to say this harshly now. I think what you're actually upset about is generally your own fault, or at least your church leadership's own fault. If you've only been at your church for a couple years, then no, it really can't be your fault necessarily. But if you've been in your church for longer than three years, and you have a, a church leadership structure that generally works with you, then it is your fault if there are people on your membership that are not on board with your church's DNA, spiritual DNA, sense of mission and identity. And the reason I say that is because you as pastors, or if you're not a pastor, if you're just in church leadership, church leadership, especially the pastor, has the right and indeed the responsibility to audit the membership role every year at Charge Conference. And if you read your book of discipline, there are several different provisions for removing inactive members, members that don't confess the historic doctrines of the United Methodist Church, members that that grumble and complain. There are are ways— to list them in your annual charge conference report. Sometimes they straight up want to withdraw their membership if you give any attention to them. Sometimes they're worshiping somewhere else and you can just say they've transferred their membership to another church if they're there every week. But if they don't get back to you or you don't know how to contact them, you can just list them on your charge conference report for three years in a row and then they're gone. The problem is a lot of pastors in their churches want to look like they are bigger than they are, and so they allow their membership numbers to get inflated. So whenever I first came to this particular church that I serve, um, worshiping attendance was between 30 and 40. The membership role was over 400. Now, I've been here several years, so we got a chance to—it was under 100 by the time we took our disaffiliation vote. But even so, you know, there were still additional people on there that probably shouldn't have been. But because we went through that long membership audit process, there was a clear sense of what membership meant, who was and was not a member. And uh, the only people who showed up on the day of were people who were active members, except for one person. Um, it just so happened that we only had one person who voted against this affiliation. I don't know for a fact it was that person. If it was, that's just fine. Um, but even so, uh, there are things that you can do and should do as a pastor to make membership meaningful and to make sure that the membership reflects the, the, the actual church rather than the inflated numbers that make uh, you or your church look better. Now, I should make clear, sometimes pastors really have advocated for membership audits, and they just haven't been able to complete it because the, the leadership of the church has been recalcitrant and reluctant to do that. And in that case, That church made the bed that they're now having to lay in. There's such a, you know, conservatives, we believe in consequences. There are consequences whenever you don't clean up your room. And so, this is one of the consequences that come when you don't take advantage of the authority given you to administer the church um, so that it, it glorifies God. The book of discipline gives a lot of provision for pastors and church leadership to decide who is in authority and how that authority is used. If you've been in a church for longer than three or four years, you really should have been able to steer the boat. Um, This also ties into a larger issue that I'm going to speak on in another video, which is the notion that Methodists or Christians are supposed to be nice, that we uh, avoid conflict within the church, that we kick the can down the road, that we don't make hard decisions when we need to, that we don't speak directly to people when we need to. Uh, these things all create a perfect storm where you have a very inflated, bloated membership role, and people can show up out of the woodwork and throw things off. Now, just because the conference can take advantage of that and is willing to take advantage of that doesn't mean they're evil. It just means that there is an incentive structure in place that that results in them um, taking advantage of the dynamics that were collectively established by the general conference. And I'm not I'm not willing to say that that's wrong. Um, well, even if I am willing to say it's wrong, it's definitely not illegal according to the covenant that we've established. So let's get into the nature of that larger covenant that we have established, and I want to focus on three general topics. Connectionalism, the third one's accountability, and what's the middle one? The middle one is connectionalism, covenant and accountability. So when, when you look at the denomination, one of the things going back to the very beginning of, of the Methodist revival movement is connectionalism, and when you look back at early Methodist documents, it's spelled with an X in the middle, K O N N K O N C O N N E X connectionalism, um, and what that had to do with initially—well, we're not going to talk about that. First, I'm going to talk about uh, an article that I'm going to recommend to you guys by David W. Scott, Doctor David W. Scott, actually went to seminary with this guy. I always liked him. I think he's a very intelligent person. He's he's like the only other person I know of who's tried to understand what's going on in Nigeria right now uh, because it's it's crazy. Uh, But anyway, he wrote this article on the many meanings of connectionalism and what I suspect the reason I suspect he did this this was recently this was uh, this last month, March 14th. He um he might have noticed that a lot of the bishops are talking about. The connectional nature of the church, and um, I've I've heard bishops talk about how we are not a uh, congregational model of church; we are a connectional model of church, and so they hold up this this notion of you know connectional means that we're all connected together, and congregational means that each congregation kind of governs itself. No, we don't have local churches governing themselves; rather, local churches are governed by a connectional entity, which would be the denomination, and so. Uh, David goes down the line of the different meanings of connectionalism. Uh, He establishes on the very beginning, connectionalism is a fundamental part of what it means to be Methodist, and that is absolutely the case. But then he he does a couple of things that I I think are not helpful because there are modern understandings of connectional that are not the same as historic Methodist definitions. So there is a way in which left-leaning – powers regularly take words that had a solid meaning, and they warp those things to mean something different. And that's a big part of why conservatives are wanting to split off. It's because we know that liberals generally don't mean the same thing by salvation or damnation or sin or redemption. You know, a lot of these these big concepts, we use the same words, we mean very different things by these words. Connectional also means very different things. Uh, things. And so he goes through uh, some different meetings uh, talking about organization. Uh, he talks about how the notion of a denomination is really quite new. It doesn't really comport with historic understandings of. Uh, I'd be interested in an article just on that. And of course, I didn't check on the link to what it uh, connects to. He also talks about the practice of conferencing, which is a distinctly Wesleyan Methodist concept. I really wish he had linked here to Kevin Watson's article on the topic where he makes the case that really conferencing is not just talking, it's the accountable talking that took place only in Wesleyan classes and bands and how the annual conference, the conferencing we do there is an extension of that. People like me, and I think Dr. Watson would make the case that what we're doing by simply talking to one another as Methodists today is not properly conferencing because it's not an outgrowth of people who are participating in the vulnerable conferencing within the class meeting. I'll try and remember to put a link to that uh, on this video in the show notes. He talks about some of the larger bodies that the United Methodist Church largely collaborates with, whether they be explicitly Methodist or not. He says, um, can we be uh, connectional with bodies that are not Methodist? I write in the margins here, there is no such thing as interdenominational connectionalism, and I'll make sure... Uh, I explain why that is in a bit. I think there is such a thing as ecumenism and the Church Catholic, but that is not the same thing as the Wesleyan notion of connectionalism, and we need to reclaim this notion, by the way. Uh, He goes through the list of some different bodies that we're a part of and how kind of complicated it is. I would say it's complicated. I would also say it's merely formal a lot of times, that it's not something that informs how Methodists are generally interacting with other Methodists and other Methodist bodies, um, we, we, this is not a coherent concept. I would say that largely and broadly in the United Methodist Church, there are a handful of nerds that understand some of the officially established stuff, but generally speaking, Methodists have no concept like this. So you have a bunch of people in high-up office supported by uh, uh, apportionment dollars that do things on our behalf that don't really trickle down or inform what we're doing um, and for that reason, I think it's kind of silly. I'm going to skip down. I, I do recommend uh, reading this article, uh, but I'm going to skip down to a, a part that I uh, uh, highlighted down here. All Christians are connected to one another by their mutual connection to Christ, whether we recognize those connections or not, and how well or poorly we live them out. I would say that's clearly true. But that shows that Methodist connectionalism is a very different concept, because there is such a thing as those who are in connection and outside of connection. So um, before we get into that specific topic, I do think that, that this notion that Dr. Scott highlighted directly corresponds with the biblical injunctions in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, and so I just made a slide of that, and I'm, uh, hopefully it's on the screen now. And if you're not familiar with it, you should pause it and just read it, make sure you understand what's in it there is a sense in which all Christians are mystically connected in one body uh, by the Holy Spirit of Christ into one church Catholic. Um, but that is not the same as Methodist connectionalism. So I, I went through this book yesterday, Wesley and the People Called Methodist by Richard Heisenrotter. I, I read this in seminary. I think it's an excellent summary of how uh, the Methodist revival took off, and uh, what, what foundational things Methodists believe and, and have in common. Connectionalism was foundational to the, the, the flourishing of the Methodist movement. Now, I, I went through, I went to the, the glossary, found the word connectional or connectionalism, and read everything, a single entry throughout this book on when it was used. And the reality is, it was used in a broad sense, but not this broad, as in Dr. Scott's. Um, uh, analysis. How it was initially used was just, who is John Wesley recognizing as on his team? So remember, he never split from the Church of England. He was part of the larger Church of England team, but Methodism was a revival movement within what they would have considered the church Catholic, the the true church. There was uh, a need. Methodists were the ones who said, the church generally is not practicing what it preaches, we need to have the form and the power of righteousness. We need to have an accountable society, it's called the United Societies, where, where people are held to the standard of Christ, and these people were very methodical, so they're pejoratively called Methodists, and then they owned the title and said, yeah, we are methodical, and we are going to govern these societies under the leadership of a, what was essentially an autocrat. John Wesley. And those who were in the connection were those that John Wesley recognized as being on his team. And so there were individual pastors that were in connection with John Wesley. And when they stepped out of line, they were no longer in connection with him. He would kick them out. There were united societies in different regions that were in connection with John Wesley and Charles and the different uh, leadership structure of the, the Methodist revival. And when they were uh, attending upon the general rules, and they were faithfully communicating with John Wesley, then they were in connection with John Wesley. So they had the benefits and the accountability of that, the, the, the carrot and stick of that. And then when someone was not in compliance with that, they were then excluded from the connection. Now, this, uh, this goes against the modern um, value of inclusivity and in- inclusivism. Now, that that takes a certain flavor within the DEI movement, and if you don't know about that, you should figure what's going on there. But even before DEI really got started, for about 100 years in the Methodist movement in America, we got rid of all the stick and only held on to the carrot um, in our denomination, which means that we stopped kicking people out. So if you know about early Methodism, John Wesley regularly—he not only kicked— preachers out, but he would come and review a, a society in a given area, and he would demand the membership information on local uh, members of each society, and he would kick out all disorderly walkers, okay? He would find out who who was not, who was just part of the, the they were a member, but they were just nominal members. They, they were not obeying the general rules, and he would kick them out, and not just one or two. Sometimes he would leave, and He would have kicked out a quarter, a third of all the members, and so it meant something to be in connection with John Wesley, or after he passed to be a faithful uh, connectional member, because that meant that you had uh, maintained a certain standard of behavior and communal engagement so that you had maintained your connection. So I would argue that connectionalism as a concept is married to this exclusive nature of Methodism. I would say that connectional has lost its meaning in a useful sense ever since we stopped removing people from, uh, from the church. So you'll see that from like Bishop uh, Sprague in 2004, who was openly preaching heresy. They refused to kick him out. I don't know that connectionalism means anything. When you have uh, pastors around the connection that preach against the doctrines in the articles of religion or things firmly established in, in Wesleyan doctrine... When, when, when annual conferences refuse to use the tools at their disposal to remove them from the connection, then I would say that connectionalism means very little. At this point, I think all you can talk about is denominationalism. So coming back to the, the rhetoric of modern bishops saying we're connectional, we're not congregational, I, I, I think it'd be more honest to say we're conciliar, not Congregational, and that means that we are ruled by a council. Conciliar means that we're ruled by a council. So you have the annual conference that is the primary unit of the church that serves uh, at the dictates of or under the constraints of the general conference, which is the only body that can speak for the entire denomination. So the, the general conference is what writes this book, right? The book of discipline. And so they write down what I would, I, I think anyone would call this a covenant. So we're going to talk about the nature of. Of covenant next. A covenant is just uh, a a contract established in the light of God. So there are some covenants that are between uh, a powerful party and uh, uh, a less powerful party. That is the covenant established on Mount Sinai between God, who is powerful, and the Israelites, who are not. That would be uh, reminiscent of a suzerainty treaty of the ancient Near East. Uh, But not all covenants are between Uh, power differentials. I would say that the annual conference and the local church do have a clear power differential, but they are governed by a larger covenant uh, from the general conference, the Book of Discipline, which is supposed to be uh, protecting people on all levels from one another and empowering them. So a covenant, by nature, is something that both parties have to assent to, sign on to, and then participate in. Sometimes covenants are conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. Sometimes covenants are not conditional. I'm going to do this for you no matter what. So uh, God's covenant with Noah is a non-conditional covenant. It's, there's nothing asked of Noah. God just says, I'm going to do this for you. Uh, the, the covenant on Mount Sinai is often conditional. You know, I and many others would say the new covenant through Christ Jesus is conditional conditional. Jesus died for us without condition, but though his blood only applies to our hearts, we are only saved under certain conditions, you know, and of course, this is another dividing point between conservatives and liberals. Mm -hmm. So, any, the the reason to talk about covenant is um, legally, when you're looking at our book of discipline, that covenant established, the annual conference is acting within its rights to demand membership information. The larger issue here, though, is Conservative churches don't want to be in covenant with the United Methodist churches anymore. I should say some. Uh, I'm sure there are still conservative churches that want to stay in the UMC. But the reality is a lot of them don't want to be in the covenant anymore, and they just want out, and it's infuriating to them that they say, okay, 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 you still have to participate in the covenant. You have to do it in the ways that we're going to oversee. You have to do it in the ways that we like. Otherwise, we're not going to let you out of the covenant. And you know, a lot of people ask, what's, what's the repercussions of that? Well, eventually it means that they can take your clergy away, send you new clergy that represent them, have their interests at heart, not yours, have their theology at heart, not, not what you've loved and, and learned, and they can hypothetically, in, in many states, seize your assets. Although they haven't done that much yet, hypothetically they have the power to do that. So that's why conservatives are pushing so hard. You gotta get out of the covenant right now, you got to play ball by their rules, otherwise you might be trapped. So I've done a lot of videos on that. To be fair, there are a lot of people in the institution on the left who say that's a lie, that he's trying to freak you out. You need to do your own research. But when we're talking about covenant, we who are in the United Methodist Church are part of a covenant body that's ruled—ruled is not the right word—run by a council, the general conference. And what they're supposed to do is— decide how it is that we're all governed together, and the problem is we have a lot of mediating uh, institutions and people—the bishops, the judicial council, the boards and agencies—those are all supposed to work the will of the general conference uh, judiciously, fairly, amicably, with righteousness, and the problem is that they've refused to do so. That they've picked and chosen what parts of the general conference's will they want to do and which things they're just going to rebel against or ignore. And people like me have said you you don't get to do that with covenant. You don't get to ignore some parts. You have to uphold all of them. And because, you know, there are some people who say, This is a marriage, you know, and this is a divorce that's happening. And I'm one of the ones that says, no. A marriage covenant is a non-conditional covenant. The only condition of which you can be uh, leave that covenant, Jesus says, is death or if they are uh, cheating on you physically with someone else, if they've been infidel. If they have not done these things, you cannot, should not, cannot morally, cannot rightly in the sight of God leave your spouse. A divorce is not right. That's another thing conservatives uh, should be clear on and sometimes aren't, liberals definitely aren't. Anyway, have I said enough offensive things today? Uh, I'll see if I can add some more. So this is not a divorce. This is a different kind of covenant. This is not an unconditional covenant. This is a covenant that, that local churches have always understood to be conditional upon the larger institution acting in good faith. And now that we have discerned the institution is not acting in good faith, we are exercising what we understand a good and righteous and moral obligation to leave this covenant body of the United Methodist Church because we have determined it is no longer faithful to the heritage and theology of the people called Methodist. And so how do we get out of this covenant relationship? That's where the anxiety is. That's where the argument is. And that's where I I need to be clear. I meant to set this out at the very beginning. Conservatives have to be more righteous than liberals. If we are right, you know, and I would say liberals, if you think you are right, you have to be more righteous than what you understand conservatives to be. So we all have to guard Uh, our, our particular side of the pool, so that there isn't this bad behavior that we so easily point out on the other side. A partisan is a person who only looks at the bad of the other and doesn't look at the bad within, and that is not who Jesus calls us to be. He calls us hypocrites when we live that way. Jesus hates hypocrites, okay? Hypocrites are not welcome in the kingdom. So don't be a hypocrite, don't do the bad behavior, don't make room for the bad behavior on your side, that the other side makes room for. This is not power politics. That's not the way Christians do things. We stand in our own integrity and our own righteousness, and we insist on things going in Jesus' way, even if that means me and my side suffer, you know, and that's why all the best, that's why we love the martyrs. The martyrs are not the ones that are Um, saying, this is what I deserve, and here's what's right, and by God, you're going to do it. The martyrs are the ones suffering at the hands of an unjust world as Christ Jesus did, because we know many times when we suffer unjustly, that is uniting us with Christ Jesus, and that's what 1 Peter is all about. Read your Bible. All right, I think I've talked about covenant enough. The last thing I just think is important to hammer home is accountability, and the thing is, accountability left the United Methodist Church a long time ago. Um, I've already talked about that in the notion of connectionalism. Connectionalism only means something if you're booting people out who are not towing the line. With covenant, it only it's the same thing. We are a covenant body. We have theological convictions. We have a way we do things. We have standards we uphold. If those things are jettisoned, then we don't stand for anything anymore. Once upon a time, it meant something to say you are a Methodist. People knew that they could expect a certain level of conduct in business, in your household, in the way you comport yourself in the world. That stopped, the word Methodist stopped meaning anything a long time ago. In fact, for a lot of people, the word Methodist has meant you can believe whatever you want, which of course is worth nothing. You know. So I am part of a, a group of Methodists wanting to say, I want Methodism to mean something now. And that means that we do some gatekeeping. That means that we keep people out who don't belong. That means that we kick people out who make their way in and don't belong. And so I'm gonna turn at the end of the, you know, the Bitter Medicine series, I'm always gonna turn at the end to an exhortation because I'm correcting something that is. So if we don't do this, what do we do? And the reality is a lot of us are gonna get out. You know, if you don't get out and if you're still stuck within the United Methodist Church, you have to continue to beat this drum of true connectionalism, true covenant, and accountability, you still have to continue to lift high the cross and the doctrines uh, through which we understand the truth of the gospel. But if you're getting out, um, there's this phrase I like. You know, when when the Israelites were free in the wilderness, but they were going through a hard time, they yearned for the flesh pots of Egypt, and I don't know what the flesh pots were, but God had saved them from slavery. He delivered them out of slavery, and yet they still yearned for Egypt, and uh, Global Methodists or Free Methodists, any any people who get free of the United Methodist Church and then start their own uh, movement or part of the GMC or whatever, you have to decide on the front end what culture you're gonna establish. I'm, I'm rooting for the Global Methodist Church not being the United Methodist Church 2.0. And of course I said we're not gonna be UMC 2.0, but I think these concepts I'm talking about today directly determine whether or not the GMC is going to be dealing with these same struggles 10, 15 years down the line. If you're not doing the gatekeeping to make the connection mean something, if you're not practicing accountability, if you're not kicking people out who spit on our doctrines, then I don't think you have much of a hope for the future. Now on the local church level, I think that this is a wake-up opportunity for conservative clergy. You need to do your membership audit, man or woman, You need to be making sure that your membership knows what membership means and stands for. You need to make sure that those who are inactive feel that that pressure to either step in or step out. You need to make people uncomfortable. Um, Remember that part of a job of a pastor is to make people uncomfortable. Yes, around sin, but also we're given the administrative role of the church for a reason. And if you don't administer your church well, there are going to be problems that come down the line. So I wanted to, to provide this, this opportunity for repentance, for conviction of sin, and to, to new life where, where, you know, I think global Methodist pastors, all pastors really, need to be uh, less reluctant to have conflict and more willing to have those hard conversations so that the covenant body means something to people again. And I think that that's something that people on the right and the left would really enjoy if we could get through this disaffiliation better than we are, if we would stop listening to our emotions so much and just say, let's belong to a covenant community that actually means something. You know, let's have some shared convictions where we're not just united theoretically by by some structure where we all believe opposite things from one another. What happens when we get to enjoy being a part of a community that actually believes the same stuff, that has the same spiritual DNA? Um, I think that there's going to be great joy in that on both the right and the left if we can be more gracious and then design something that actually reflects um, some integrity on the other side of this. So um, anyway, I think I'm at the end of my thoughts. Good for you if you held on to the end. Thank you for engaging these thoughts with me. If you disagree with me um, and you have something more substantial to offer than I disagree and I don't like you, Then you are very welcome uh, to to write. I I read all the comments at this point. I really enjoy it. Um, And I'm going to invite you, you know, I do a lot of other stuff beyond this. If there's other information pertaining to other annual conferences, um, stuff going on that affects conservatives and would be good for everybody to know, email me at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. Continue to pray for me that I'm only a helpful person in the midst of all this. Pray for your annual conference, your bishop, your church. Uh, God bless the Methodist movement. Um, Yeah, God is good. I'll see you later.